You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you want to grab a place to sit in the Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 22 through chapter 9, verse 1. I will go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll dig in. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. God, we uh, lift up this time to you. We pray that your spirit would guide us into all truth. We pray that we would have open eyes and open ears, as Bob prayed, that we would receive what you have for us today and that we would, uh, that we would conform our lives to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across two different articles, I printed them out here, two different articles that I think give such a contrast to two really different Jesuses. One is, uh, this is by Religion News Service back in November, a TikTok Jesus promises divine blessings and many worldly comforts. A TikTok profile called Daily Believer has 70 videos with computer-generated Jesuses looking directly at the viewer, beseeching them to stop scrolling and watch the next minute's worth of content. If they do, they will receive a blessing within the hour. If they do not, a computer-generated Jesus issues a thinly-veiled threat of damnation. It is a TikTok chain letter, one whose creator can be monetarily compensated. By TikTok, between two and three, uh, between two and four cents for every thousand views. <clears throat> it's simple and effective. The Daily Believer views are dwarfed by TikTok, sorry, megastars such as Kylie Jenner. Its engagement percentages, though, are much higher, receiving some form of engagement from about one out of every four viewers. Whether or not there are religious motivations underlying the Daily Believer's desire for viewer engagement, there are monetary benefits for sure. There's almost a million followers, and they have several millions of engagements every day. This is one version of Jesus, a computer-generated AI version of Jesus. Um, I also came across one that, uh, I think it's on Twitch, where 24-7, a computer-generated Jesus will answer your questions live and in person, um, uh, uh, on demand, I should say. So that's one kind of Jesus, an on-demand Jesus, that gives us what we want, when we want, and if we'll just click, we'll just follow, we'll just share, then we will have blessings in life. We'll have the blessed life. That's one kind of Jesus that's floating out of there, kind of an American kind of Jesus here, generated by the Internet. But here's another kind. North Korea, persecuted believer, uh, persecuted Christian in North Korea, Bay, we'll call her Bay, was sentenced to a lifetime of backbreaking labor and starvation rations. 
just for having a Bible. If you were to see Bay during the day, you'd assume that her work was picking crops. Every morning in the village she's forced to live in, Bay spends the day working in the fields. If you saw all this, you'd be appalled, but you'd have no idea this isn't Bay's real work. That starts at night, when she and her housemates cover windows with blankets, light a small candle, and sit in a tight circle. Bay gets out a book. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, she reads. In North Korea, Christians face imprisonment in harsh labor camps and even death. But despite the, the dangers, Bay continues to serve Christ in her house church. Recently, she was able to get a letter to open doors, an open doors partner in China. Dear brother, we are well and are at peace through the grace of Jesus Christ and your prayers. When our Bible was found, it was immediately destroyed. And because we are Christians, we were exiled to a remote village where there was no chance of ever leaving. Work here is hard. Rations are limited. We are always hungry or sick. We need to forage to survive. But every morning when I open my eyes, I feel the presence of the Lord and thank our Father God that I am still strong enough to be used as his servant. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Even though it was difficult, I recently was able to cross the border into China. There I met with other Christians. They gave me food, medicine, and by the grace of God, a new Bible. I was offered a place to stay in China. It would have meant freedom. But I could not abandon my family and church, however small it may be. From your perspective, brother, our suffering may appear as though we live a cursed life. However, we see it as a blessing because it is a shortcut to the Father. But, but yet, brother, I have one more request, that you send our gratitude to those who continue to pray for us. In return, we'll stay healthy and continue to spread the gospel throughout North Korea. Your sister in Christ. That's a different kind of Jesus than AI Jesus who you ask and he blesses you. That's not a real Jesus. But the Jesus that Bay follows is the real Jesus. And we're going to see a very stark turn in the book here. In fact, we're calling this message, We're Halfway There. Because this really is the turning point of the book. We've seen that Jesus has displayed his power as the Son of God over all kinds of things, death and demons and diseases, over creation. And now we have a turn in the book that's marked by this healing, this healing of a, of a blind man, and it's going to set us on a trajectory now to where things are going to really ramp up. The intensity of this book is going to ratchet up quite a bit. So now Jesus is not just a miracle-working healer that's wandering through Galilee, as important as that is. But now we're going to see that he has a mission. He has a mission to accomplish. And it's a mission of suffering. A mission of crucifixion. And all who will follow him must take up their cross and follow him. So the book is going to get very, very intense today and will continue to be intense until it ends. So buckle up. This is where we really get a turning here. And we get this sense of halfway there. We're halfway there. We're halfway through the book. We've also got a halfway understanding of Jesus. And that's marked by this living parable of a two-half healing in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. Let me read it again. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent, home, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So this is a connecting miracle. Mark is putting this together in his narrative. He's putting this miracle right here. And what it is doing is this miracle is connecting backward to the healing of the deaf mute in chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. If you remember that one, Jesus pulls a man aside. He spits, touches the man's mouth, says open, and his mouth opens, right? So we have this connection. And in between this miracle and that miracle, that miracle about deafness and speaking, and this miracle that we have here on sight, we have... A same kind of pattern where Jesus is using spit and this unique touch. It's unique between these two miracles, but they're tied together because right in the middle, as Joseph pointed out last week, Jesus is challenging his disciples, do you have ears but not hear? Do you have eyes but not see? There are spiritual realities that they're not perceiving, and these miracles sort of bookend that section that his disciples do not yet see. But also, this is the beginning of a new bookend between blind healings. So here we have the healing of a blind man, and we're going to have a healing of a blind man named Bartimaeus in chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. 
So this, this miracle right here serves as a swing. A swing from, okay, we need to see if the disciples really do understand who Jesus is. Do they have spiritual sight? Do they have spiritual hearing? And then we're going to see that culminated in the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And so we have just a really unique construction here that we're to see these units together. And we're about to enter into a unit where Jesus three different times is going to say, hey, you're starting to get, you're starting to see who I am, that I'm the Christ, the Son of God. But now you need to get the other half of your sight. You need to get the other half of your sight that I have come to suffer. Not just who I am, but what I have come to do, what I've come to accomplish. And so this miracle works as a living parable. It's not that Jesus screwed up. He healed the man and then he couldn't see clearly and Jesus had to try again. It's not like he was low on power. His batteries were low or he was just distracted and only got the half healing in. No, this is a living parable about where we're at in the book. That we're starting to see who Jesus is, but we still have a long way to go. And the disciples, they see somewhat vaguely, like the man who sees people, but they're like trees, which I think is a picture that the man probably had sight before. If he's able to identify trees, at some point he was able to see and then went blind. Now he's got that back and he's able to go, yeah, uh, people don't look like people, they look like trees, but I'm seeing something. And Jesus, with this second touch, this second stage, there's this process that needs to happen. And we see that when it comes to spiritual growth, sometimes it's a process. Sometimes we come to faith in Christ and we're understanding some stuff, but then we still need to grow and we have these awakenings and we grow. So we see this process with this healing of a man, this two-half healing. That's a picture of the fact that in verses 27 through 33, we only have a half, halfway understanding of Jesus. So let's look at that. Let's look at verse chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. This parable then plays out as Jesus asks this man a question. Do you see anything? Now he's going to ask his disciples, do you see anything? Do you see who I am? So we've got this connection between spiritual sight. Do they see, do they perceive who Jesus is? Look at verse 27. And Jesus went in with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? We could connect that to the passage to where he just asked, do you see anything? Hey, guys, do you see who I truly am? Who do the people say that I am? Do the people have spiritual sight? And notice that phrase, on the way, that's going to be a marker now for the next four chapters. Nine different times this idea of the way is going to come up, the way of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. We've seen that in the first chapter, first eight chapters. What is Jesus' way? So we're just going to see this theme again and again, Jesus on the way, on the way, on the way, on the way. And then when we get to Bartimaeus, we're going to see that Bartimaeus follows Jesus on the way. What is the way of Jesus? Not just who he is, but what did he come to do and how do we be on his way? If you go back to Mark chapter 1 at the beginning of the book, when Mark gives his introduction to the book, uh, Mark 1 verses 2 and 3, this is how the whole book starts. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. That's a key theme in the book of Mark that we're going to have emphasized here. What is the way of Jesus? We're getting who he is. We can see him. He's like a tree. We don't fully get what is his way. If he's the Messiah, then he's going to obviously, his way would be victory over Rome, right? And the reestablishment of all the Jewish life. That was what you would expect from the Messiah. That's what you would expect. That would be the way of Jesus. Verse 28, here's the answer. They told him. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So the spiritual verdict on Jesus, what, who do people say that I am on his identity, is like, well, you're clearly a very spiritual man. Maybe like John the Baptist, which is what Herod Antipas thought, right? When he beheaded John the Baptist, and then he began hearing about Jesus, he feared that John the Baptist had rose from the dead. It already, Jesus had already warned his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and Herod seems to think that maybe Jesus is um, John resurrected from the dead. Some say he's Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets. And so the people don't see, the people don't have spiritual sight of Jesus. In a sense, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod Antipas has permeated everything. But verse 29, he turns around and says, he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Not just what's popular opinion, what's... TikTok Jesus say, right? Who do you say that I am? What's your verdict? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. A very personal and direct verdict is demanded. Who do you say that I am? That's a question that we all have to answer. 
The ideas of Jesus that are floating around out there, they don't. The verdict of your parents, the verdict of the people around you, you have to answer that question for yourself. No one, every one of us has to answer that question, who do you say that I am? It's the same for us. Our soul hangs in the balance based on what we see of Jesus, who we believe him to be. And Peter answers rightly, you are the Christ. This is the right response. Peter does see. He sees Jesus, right? Spiritual sight. The first eight chapters of the book have worked out. Peter does see Jesus. But how well? When he says you're the Christ, this means the anointed one, the word Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title coming from the Old Testament, meaning anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there's three classes of people that were considered anointed, prophet, priests, and kings. Those were all specially anointed for special service to God. So you're the one, you're the one who is anointed to come, to be the special one, the Messiah. Peter is saying that Jesus is the anointed king who, is, who was promised to David, the one who would be the Messiah, the one who would be the rescuer of his people. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is centuries before Jesus. This is a promise God made. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up David, a da- for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what Peter has in mind. You clearly have given evidence that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the one promised from the Old Testament, the son of David, the king that we have been waiting for. And he's exactly right. Peter finally gets it. Matthew's gospel goes into a big affirmation and explanation about church and all that kind of stuff which is great. Mark doesn't do that here. Mark takes this story and has a little bit different emphasis, a complementary emphasis. Matthew takes the perspective and Jesus just really celebrates this moment of, of Peter's confession and then begins to unwrap what that means for this called out assembly called the church. In a sense, Matthew has sort of a glass half full reading of this confession of Peter. But Mark, who I think is getting this information from Peter himself, It seems to be a little bit of a glass half empty because we skip over. Mark does not record all that Jesus says commending Peter, but just tells him to be quiet. And then we have the emphasis really on this second part of the the conversation. So this, Mark seems to want to emphasize that yes, Peter's getting it, but he's only got half of it. Matthew sort of celebrates the good half. Mark seems to kind of lean into the fact that he, he only has half at this point. He only has a halfway understanding. And we see that revealed in verse 30 through 32. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So he was very emphatic to go, hey, you need to know now that, you've, now that you're clear in your mind who I am, that I am the anointed king, My throne is going to look a lot different than you think. My kingdom is going to come in a way that seems totally upside down. I'm not the kind of Messiah you think. You're right, I am the Messiah, but you have a misunderstanding on what kind of Messiah I am going to be. And he teaches them exactly what kind of um, what kind of king he will be. And this is really utterly shocking. Like, we're used to this because we're 2,000 years down the road. Maybe we've grown up around Christian things. We understand this. But just imagine you think you're promised king after after all of these years of oppression by different nations, you've got this promise of a deliverer, and he comes, it looks like he's got the power to do it, and then he tells you he's come to die? Like, this is the worst revolutionary ever, right? This is the worst president or king ever, right? Like, my plan is to die. Oh, gosh, we don't have a lot of hope in this. They totally misunderstand. But Jesus is doing something really, really important here to the book of Mark and to the gospel is that Jesus is pulling together three key promises from the Old Testament into one that no one really knew went together. He weaves these three promises, prophecies, pictures of the Old Testament. He brings them together in this moment to go, this was the plan of God from the very beginning. Was that the Messiah would come, but he would come as a suffering Messiah. And let me just show you these three passages that he's pulling together. One that we read already, Sarah read it earlier, is from Daniel chapter 7, which is the Son of Man. Because what does he say? The Son of Man must suffer. Jesus is using this, I think, in the Daniel 7, that there was a promise that one like a Son of Man would come before the Ancient of Days and he would receive the nations as an inheritance. 
This is a promise. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Yes, that's what Peter wants. <laughs> that's what Peter's looking for. A king who will conquer and take dominion, overthrow our oppressors, and make us prosperous again. Yes, that king is real. Jesus is that king. He says, yes, the son of man, me, Daniel 7. You got it right. That's me. Must suffer. That throws you way off. And that all of a sudden points you to Isaiah chapter 53, which Sarah also read. Wait a minute. The Daniel 7 son of man is also the Isaiah 53 suffering servant? What? No one had thought about this before. No one had put these two pieces together, certainly not these disciples. In Isaiah chapter 53, really from 52 through 54, it says, Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Instead of wielding a sword and taking down his enemies, he will be on the other end of the sword. He will take the sword of his enemies. He will take the wrath of God upon himself. But there's also a third passage here that he pulls together when he says, By the elders and the chief priests, I must suffer and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. These are the good guys, right? These are the spiritual leaders. These are the the caretakers of Israel's religion. This is the people who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. They're the ones that are supposed to be watching for the Messiah and pointing him out when he came. But we see back in Psalms chapter uh, 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's going to come up later. Jesus himself is going to use that to go, this is what this means, is that actually the religious leaders who are supposed to be preparing God's people for the Messiah will be the ones leading the charge in the rejection of that Messiah. And so now in this moment of profession, now, when they're starting to see who he is clearly, Jesus goes, let me give you the other half. I am the ruling and reigning son of man. I'm also the suffering servant who must go and suffer. And that suffering is going to come at the hands of the builders, the elders and the chief priests, the supposed good guys. He will be killed, and after three days, he will rise. We could pull other passages together here too, but this is, a, this is an earth-shattering moment. This is, is mind-blowing that the plan of God is that he would send the Messiah and that the Messiah would suffer at the hands of his own people and that that would be the way. That would be the way forward. This is just way too much that all of these things would come together. This just is too much. And so look at what Peter does in verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is a very strong word. It's the same word that's used when Jesus rebukes demons and tells them to get out of here. This is not just a, hey, Jesus, let's talk a little. Like, maybe, maybe now. No, this is like he is confronting Jesus. Can you just imagine the audacity? That's how offended Peter is. This is so, this is just how blind we still are. He doesn't see clearly yet. And so he rebukes Jesus and he began to rebuke him. He was, he I think the implication going, he was going to continue to correct Jesus' theology, correct Jesus' messianess, correct Jesus' plan. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus, he rebuked Peter. Counter rebuke. You need to shut your mouth, Peter, and said, get behind me, Satan. Whoa, we just went from confessing the Christ to being called Satan. That was quite a swing. He sees, but he doesn't see yet. And Jesus goes, this is serious. For you're setting your mind on not the things of God, but on the things of man. You're thinking that this kingdom works like earthly kingdoms do. You're thinking that, this is, that things are going to be exactly like they have been in the past. I have not come to conquer with the sword. I have not come to be that kind of Messiah. Jesus says, get out of my way, Satan. Get in line. Or we, we could say that. Get yourself back in submission under me. Get in line, get behind me, get out of my way. Because your challenge of me and the fact that my way must include suffering and death, you are getting in the way of the plan of God. You are opposing it, and you need to repent of that. You see, simply believing that Jesus is unique and divine and significant, while that's essential 
it's not yet sufficient. It's not enough to just respect Jesus even as a divine person. We must also embrace what he came to do, which was to die for our sins, to be the one who was rejected. Because our real problem, Peter's real problem, is not the nation of Rome. It's not oppression from the outside. It's the fact that he has a sin problem with God on the inside. That only Jesus, the suffering Messiah. The real oppressor is Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Peter doesn't actually see yet. It's like trees walking around. Why does he call him Satan? Well, because at this point, Peter hasn't said anything that Satan himself wouldn't say. Jesus believes, or Satan believes that Jesus is the Christ. That, that's not new. Uh, Satan knows who God is. Satan has awesome theology. Satan knows who Jesus is, but that doesn't save him. The Christ must accomplish something on your behalf. Just believing who Jesus is is not enough. We must also embrace what he came to do. We must also embrace his way. James 2.19 says, you believe in God, you do well, good, that's essential, but it's not sufficient. Even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons believe that Jesus is the Christ. Peter, you're not all the way there yet. You're only halfway there. This is an essential part, but it's not a sufficient part. In fact, if we look earlier in Mark, even the demons have got a right understanding of Jesus. They seem to get it before anybody else does. If you look in Mark chapter 1, verse 23 through 25, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, right in the midst of their worship service, someone who is um, uh, so demon-possessed, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. So, 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 so Peter is only halfway there, right? He's only gotten a halfway confession. In chapter 5, verse 7, And crying out in a loud voice, he, meaning the demon-possessed man of Matthew chapter 5, the legion, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment, torment me. Why does he call him Satan? Because this rebuke is exactly like the mindset of Satan. When Peter comes and rebukes Jesus, he says, you don't have to suffer, Jesus. You do not have to die. Peter is essentially saying, you will not surely die. That is offensive, that is unnecessary. The Messiah does not have to suffer. What did Satan say to Eve in the garden? Take the fruit. You will not surely die. Peter is, is whispering the words of the serpent. You will not surely die. Sin is not the problem. God's not that holy. What did Satan say to Jesus in the temptation? Mark doesn't record this, but Matthew does. Where the third temptation of Jesus is Jesus, uh, Satan says, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. If you will just bow down to me, I'll just give them to you. What's in the background of that is they both know that Jesus is going to suffer and die and rise again in order that he might claim the nations. And Satan is like, hey, we could just cut out the whole suffering part. I'll just give them to you if you'll bow to me. You can take the easy route. You don't have to go the way of the cross. I will give you an easier route to all the kingdoms of the world. And that seems to be what Peter thinks too, is that there isn't a need to suffer and die in order for him to be the Messiah. What Peter wants, even Satan could give him. I just want liberation from Rome. Well, Satan can give him that. Why bow to Jesus? Satan can give you political power and freedom from Roman oppression. Satan can give you a better life. That was the temptation to Jesus. You don't need to suffer and die. You will not surely die. You don't need to do this. What Peter needs but doesn't yet see or understand is that only a crucified and risen Jesus can be the Messiah. The rest of the book of Mark is going to drive towards that, that this is the way, the way of crucifixion and resurrection. This is the way. Satan tempted Jesus with another way. Satan often tempts us with another way. That somehow we can follow Jesus apart from suffering or apart from embracing his suffering? It's not sufficient. First eight chapters, who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of God. He's evidenced that in all these powerful ways. The second eight chapters, what must he do? Who is he? Well, what must he do? He must die and rise again as a sin bearer. That's what we're going to see. That he must give his life as a ransom for many, which is going to be the punchline in chapter 10. 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Any other way is sat- satanic. Any other vision of Jesus, apart from him being the suffering and crucified Lord, is a false gospel. John Piper says this, the random death of someone doesn't save anyone. What we see here by Jesus predicting it, and we see the pictures in the Old Testament, was that this was planned of God from eternity past to rescue a people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The random death of someone doesn't save anyone. The fact that Jesus just happened to run into a buzzsaw, well, that's a bummer, but now God's going to fix it or use it or something. That's not it. This was planned. Jesus is saying this was the plan from the beginning. I am going to suffer and die as part of God's plan. This is not plan B. This is not a thwarted attempt. This is not me taking a wrong step. This is the planned execution of the Son of God for the sake of people. Without God's total sovereignty, there is no salvation. And so we see the sovereignty of God in all this. Which results then, Jesus then takes this opportunity to lay out a teaching before the people. And this would be shocking. There's no halfway allegiance. Chapter 8, verse 34, through chapter 9, verse 1. So coming off to this rebuke of Peter, he sees but he doesn't see. There's a whole lot more Peter still has to get figured out in his mind if he's going to be on the way with Jesus. And so he takes this opportunity, he goes, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, and just imagine this, maybe you've been hanging around with Jesus, you've gotten to see some of the miracles, you got to see all the healings. Um, following Jesus has been pretty fun to this point. Really fun. This is awesome. Like everything is going our way. Cool stuff happens when Jesus is around. We get fed. We get demons kicked out of us. We all feel better because we're being healed. Like, everything has been pretty awesome. And then he says this, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, we just, we just ratcheted up like a thousandfold here, didn't we? Think of what a cross is. We so domesticated it, hang it around our neck, we put it on our car. Do you know what a cross is? It is one of the most brutal execution and torture devices ever devised in human history. Invented by the Persians back in 400-ish BC. Perfected over time and used by the Romans to take people who were insurrectionists, people who, especially bad, especially bad criminals. They would take them on this cross and they would scourge them often, ripping up to a third of the skin off their body, exposing internal organs. Then they would put them on this cross beam. They would nail, put, drive nails through your wrists, you know, your funny bone, that nerve, right through there and through the feet and then suspend you in air up on, you've, you've seen a cross before, and you would hang there. And you would have to transfer the weight from the nail in your feet to the nails on your hands, scraping your spine up and down against a rugged wooden cross. And it is a slow race to see whether you will asphyxiate to death or bleed to death, or your heart will just fail. Will you suffocate? How will you die? And just suspend it up on this cross. It could take anywhere from a few hours to several days. Bugs crawling on you, people Dogs nipping at you, birds, as you up naked in front of everyone, shameful, just taking the process of death, stretching it as long as possible, not able to move at all. Like just, just think about what a cross is, what a crucifixion is. We've become far too familiar with a cross as sort of a trinket. But crucifixion is a brutal rejection. It's it's a it's a it's unrelenting suffering. In our language, it would be like saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up your guillotine. Everyone, grab your cyanide pills and follow me. Your hangman's noose, your lethal injection, come, follow me and die. Daily, take up your cross every day and follow me. This does not sound like TikTok Jesus at all. What a horrible command. What a terrible thing to say to people. You think about what a cross means. A cross means opposition and rejection and shame and suffering and death for Jesus' sake and the gospel, the message. Who would ever sign up for this? 
What motivations does Jesus have that would ever make us want to take up our cross and follow him? Who would want to live that kind of life of unrelenting misery to follow him? That's what he's saying here. And he gives four, four statements. Four meaning because. Here's the reasons why this is the kind of life you should choose. In verses 35, 36, 37, 38, he just layers them up together. We'll sort of summarize them. It'd be fun to pull apart the arguments. We don't have time for all of that. But we'll just summarize them here of going, here, here, this is why you should choose this way, this life, this Messiah. Why in the world would anyone want to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus? Why would anyone want that kind of life? Early Christian sources say that you wouldn't even speak the name cross or crucifixion in polite company. It's so wretched and terrible. And Jesus goes, that's a good metaphor for what I'm going for. Just feel that for a second. And here's what he says. Here's why. Here's why. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Let's say it were to work out and you were to get everything you wanted. You were like a combination of Elon Musk and Taylor Swift and, I don't know, the president. You just had everything, money, power, prestige, popularity. You had all of it. And then you got to the end of your life, you're like, I'd like to cash it in for my soul. You would not have enough. You would not have enough. Your soul is too expensive. And you spent it on stuff. What can a man give in return for his soul? What if you were to gain the whole world? You would lose your soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with his holy angels. So basically, we have two ways to live. We have two options. They're mutually exclusive. Which way will we choose, right? That's where Jesus is putting his disciples and the people. Going, okay, now it's time to get real. This is the second half. This is what we're going for. This is the kingdom I'm giving you. And I think we have, I think I have a slide up here that sort of compares the two. Here's the two ways to live. You have one where you can take up your cross and lose your life. And if we think about what taking up a cross is, that's opposition, that's rejection, that's shame, that's suffering, that's death. That's following me. That's the way. Or you have another option. You could gain the world, but you'll lose your soul. And it's just the exact opposite. Instead of opposition, you'll have ease. Instead of rejection, you'll have acceptance. Instead of shame, you'll have glory in this life. Instead of suffering, comfort. Instead of death, safety. Which way will you choose? One leads to life, one to death. One is shame now for myself and the gospel. And glory later. The other is glory now and shame later for eternity. That's the bottom line here. And he says in chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they sing the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What does this mean? We'll talk about that tonight in home group. We don't have time today. But tonight at home group, we'll unpack what I think that is getting at. Bottom line, I love what Carson says, theologian, says, no doubt, shocking. In the first century world, cross-bearing is now the boundary marker of reconstituted Israel and will become its basic sign, covenantal sign. As Rome's ultimate sign of degradation, it directly repudiates Israel's nationalistic messianic hopes and first century Greco-Roman conceptions of power and status. It just turns it all upside down, doesn't it? of this chasing for political power or ease or somehow a comfortable life where things go our way. Jesus is like, I have no interest. I have no interest in that. That's not the way we're going. We even see as we celebrated this morning in the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper, we're picturing a death. We're picturing a death that Christ must die for our sins and that we must die to ourselves to follow him. That's what Josh just pictured for us today is an identification with this message. When we think of the Lord's Supper, as we discussed earlier before service, the Lord's Supper is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This is at the center of Christianity. This is what marks Christians off. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What What a miserable Messiah you have. What a miserable God 
that he would call you to suffer like this? But to us, you know what the cross is? But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Whoa. He goes on later in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. <laughs> they were getting frustrated with Paul because he wasn't unpacking all of the theological nuances and everything. Like, I'm here to preach Christ. That's the power of God. Now, he does a lot of that other stuff too, but he's going, man, do not miss the fact that what makes us the people of God is that we follow a crucified Savior. Everything flows in and out of the crucified Christ. Galatians 6.4, far be it for me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is scandalous in his day. And it should be scandalizing for us today. Like, oh, this looks way different than the American dream. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Death, destruction, and the pursuit of suffering, right? I mean, what, what would be the, like, this is, this is so shocking. John, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when God calls a man, he calls him to die. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. Christianity, if it's true, is of supreme importance. This is the most important thing in the world. This is worth being crucified for. But if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. You should reject this immediately. Who, why would you suffer if this is false? The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. That's exactly where Jesus puts it, right? If you want to follow me, it's got to be the most important thing. It's got to be worth having everything else put to death for. It's got to be worth all of it for me and the sake of the gospel. And so we land with a couple of questions, three questions actually, which is more than a couple. What about you? Do you see Jesus clearly? Who does the world say that Jesus is? Well, Islam says he's a great prophet. A bunch of religions say he's an enlightened man. Atheists say he's an exaggerated myth. AI Jesus is a dispenser of niceties and therapeutic poison. But who do you say that he is? Do you see him for who he is? Your eternity is not going to be based on what your parents, the internet, or other religions say. It's going to be who do you say that he is. And you're going to have to answer. Jesus is the Messiah of the scriptures. Do you have spiritual sight? Secondly, do you confess Jesus rightly? Peter had an opportunity to profess what he believed about Christ. And he got half of it right. He didn't get the other half. But what about you? Now, learning from Peter. Do you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That he is the Son of Man, but he's also the suffering servant. He is your God, he is your King, and he is your Savior. And will you follow Jesus fully? Will you take up your cross and follow him? And let me just ask a few probing questions here, just to sort of like press this in a little bit. So be ready to be a little uncomfortable. Losing your life, your dreams, your plans, your comfort for Jesus and his gospel. Let me ask this. If you looked at your bank account, would it be evident that you're a cross-bearing follower of Jesus? Would there be evidence there? If you looked at your calendar, would there be evidence that you're a cross-bearing follower of Jesus? Would you see it there? If you looked at your internet or watch history, would it be evident that there's a cross-bearing follower of Jesus there? If you looked at your Spotify playlist, would it be evidence that there's a cross-bearing follower of Jesus there? If you looked just at your internal attitude towards the church, towards other believers, towards the lost, would there be evidence of a cross-bearing follower of Jesus there? And if you hung a recorder around your neck that just recorded every word that you said, and we were to play it back, would it sound like a cross-bearing follower of Jesus? Would there be evidence of that? I could go on, but you get the point. It's easy to say that we're Christians. It's a whole other thing to follow Jesus and actually bear a cross daily. And that's what we must do. Take some time. Sometimes it's a process. But this is the only Christianity there is. I don't have another softer, easier, JV-level Christianity to offer you. It's a one or a zero, right? I want to close with just, uh, I love this book right here, The Insanity of God, where this uh, former missionary who got beat up, lost a, lost a child, um, just got really beat up on, uh, on the mission field, had to come home from Somalia, 
and then gets this second ministry assignment where he begins to go around to formerly closed countries and begins to talk to persecuted believers and just start to catalog some of their stories of how they were faithful through persecution. So in Soviet Russia, in communist China, in all these different places around the world. And there's one particular Muslim country where he runs into a man who used to be a, a pretty vicious and nasty gang leader and, uh, and was very zealous for Allah and for Islam. And at some point this man was, uh, had a dream that then led him to a Christian that led him to be converted. And then he became such a radical Christian that he then began to uh, assist in smuggling Bibles uh, into the country that he was a part of. Uh, there's just a tremendous number of stories in here uh, about how God just sort of miraculously delivered him from all these different places and situations and transformed him. And so this guy, Nick Ripkin, which is kind of a pseudonym, sits down with him and he's sitting in the dark because he doesn't want his, anyone to know who, what his face looks like or anything and he's interviewing him and he's telling him all these stories and he's saying, how many men have you killed? Oh, I last counted a hundred. Uh, and that doesn't count battle. Like this, he, he calls it, this is the, the hardest, the, 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 what does it say? The, this is the toughest man that I have ever met. And so he's sitting here and they begin to end their, converse, uh, end their conversation as he's cataloging this man's story, trying to protect his identity, just being stunned by who this man used to be and now who he is in Christ. He says, as I listen to this incredible story, I assume that this storyteller would never be more than a shadow and a voice for me. And I was fine with that. But I, was inter I had interviewed so many people that I could sometimes hear what people were not saying and what things they were uncomfortable talking about. At the end of almost six hours of listening to this man's life story, I expressed my respect and appreciation for his willingness to talk to me. I told him how inspired I was by his testimony, and I praised God with him for all that the Lord had done in and through him. I told him that because of his testimony, my life and faith would never be the same again. At the same time, I probed just a bit into his story. I said, you have told me that you are married and you have sons, that you have led your wife and your children to Christ, and that you have even baptized them. What I'm wondering is this. Where do they fit in your ministry? You haven't talked about that. How do they help you? What is happening with your family? I was not expecting what, was, what happened next. The man leapt out of the darkness and suddenly stood face to face with me. He clamped his scarred hands down tight on my shoulders and his fierce eyes bored like lasers into mine. I instinctively thought of my earlier question about the number of men that he had killed. For hours I had listened to his inspiring story, but now I was terrified as he shook me and demanded to know, how can God ask it? Tell me, how can he ask it of me? I think maybe that was when my heart started beating again. I realized that maybe he was angry at God, not me. My confusion cleared up even more as he went on to exclaim, I have given him everything. My body has been broken. I have been jailed. I have been starved. I have been beaten. I have been left for dead. His words sounded a lot like the Apostle Paul's recitation of all that he had suffered in his service to Christ. I have been willing to die for Jesus, he, plead. he, he pleaded. But do you know what I fear? When I go to bed at night, what keeps me awake, what actually terrifies me, is the thought that God might ask of my wife and my children what I have already willingly given him. How could he ask it? Tell me. How could God ask that of my wife and children? I paused for a few moments and prayed that the Lord would guide my words as I responded. Brother, my wife is safe in Kentucky. My, my two living sons are in school doing well. I told him a little bit of Timothy's story. That's his son who passed away on the mission field. We had already talked together about my time in Somalia. Finally, I told him, I personally cannot answer your question. But what I would ask you another question that I have had to ask myself. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your wife and your children? He was undoubtedly the toughest man I ever met. He began to sob. He wrapped his arms around me and buried his face in my shoulder and wept. When he finally stopped, he stepped back, wiped away his tears. He seemed angry at himself for his display of emotion. Then he looked me in the eyes and nodded and declared, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. He's worth my life. He's worth, worth my wife's life. He is worth the lives of my children, and I have got to get them involved in what God is doing with me. And with that, the toughest man I ever met said goodbye. He turned and walked out of the room. Is Jesus worth it? The whole Jesus, the Son of God, who must suffer and die. And to follow him, we must take up our cross daily, putting it all on the table.
to follow him. Let's bow our heads and let's just take a moment to process what we've heard. That's pretty intense. But take a moment to just do business with God for a moment and I will pray and we will sing. Oh God, we come before you and we believe that this is your word. We believe that you, that everything that we have studied today is true, uh, that this is the real Jesus. And it's almost too much to bear. It was too much for Peter to bear in the moment. And if we're honest, this is a lot for us to bear. This book has just taken it up a notch. And Lord, we need to hold it up as a mirror to our lives. I pray that you would help us uh, to not see in a halfway sense, that you would open our eyes to what this really is, both its, both the rewards and the costs. And I pray that you would be patient with us as we work through the process of embracing all that you have called us to in this passage. And God, I pray that you would enable us to take hold of it by faith, that all of this is good and true and worth it. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our mouths that we would confess you fully. And open up our whole lives that we may follow you as you've called us to, taking up our cross daily and following you. Help us to start today continue today. Strengthen us for that task. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.